So this is an interview with Matt Gross, formerly the uh, frugal traveler at the New York Times, uh, and the recent uh, writer of the book, The Turk Who Loved Apples. Um, the book has been updated and was just published here in Taiwan, where I live. Um, I hope it's a really interesting conversation. Matt and I both have really long histories in travel, and a lot of what we chat about is about uh, more the process of travel than travel itself. So why places change, um, how media works to represent those places, and some of the behind the scenes that goes into writing for a publication like the uh, New York Times. Uh, I think it's a pretty interesting uh, chat, um, and I hope you agree. Um, if you like what we're doing, come check us out at asiaarttours.com, or you can email me with any questions or tour inquiries or whatever's on your mind at matt at asiaarttours.com. Thanks, and uh, hope you enjoy. us about the book. Uh, tell us a little bit about why it's being published here in Taiwan, and then tell us why, when I could look at a bikini model, why should I read a book in the age of Instagram? <laughs> That's a heavy question, man. So yeah, the Turk who loved apples and other tales of losing my way around the world is, uh, is my travel memoir, and it's my attempt to turn 30 or so years of travel experiences uh, you know across decades and across continents into some kind of semi-coherent travel narrative to make sense of a whole lifetime's worth of experiences that don't necessarily make sense the structure is uh the idea is to confront the things that are difficult in travel and tell the stories of how I have dealt with all of the horrible downsides and negatives of a lifetime of travel, of being lonely and lost and sick and poor and confused, and how over many, many trips, over many, many years, I learned how to deal with those things and uh, learned, figured out how to embrace the plus side, the bright side, the happy side, making friends and eating well and learning to appreciate what I have and not wish I had what lots of money could buy. And yeah, that is The Turk Who Loved Apples. Um, it is now being published in Taiwan uh, under a different name. What is the Chinese name? Why Suffer to Travel? <laughs> And it doesn't even have a question mark at the end. It's why it, this is this is why suffer to travel. That's where we're at. It's about to come out. Um, I have no idea if it's getting good reviews, bad reviews, any reviews in Taiwan. But uh, I think in about a week when I arrive in Taipei, I'll find out. I think Bourdain talks about this. Uh, talked about this too, where interruptions are oftentimes some of the best part of travel. Um, uh, just for one quick story, you it relates to Taiwan. When you cycle here in the summer, magpies will attack you because they're protecting their nest, the type of magpie that Taiwan has. Australia also has. You'll go to Melbourne and there's all these stories of cyclists who have to you know, put like Mad Max style defense gear on their bike helmets because these magpies will swoop and attack them. Um, and, you know, I used to hate them. I would actually, you know, carry around little pebbles that I could throw as they were swooping me. Um, but I came to sort of see them as like this interruption of nature, like this sort of reminder of like this road you're cycling on, all these houses, all of this used to be nature. And before this, you know, this wouldn't have been seen as this 
inconvenience, it just would have been seen as the way things are. Um, it's the Chinese New Year right now, and it's sort of that same thing, you know, uh, there'll just be these temple cars, which are these cars, the temple, like these flatbed pickups, the temple will load with uh, performers, like just banging on drums, and you know, they're all old, so they get up at like seven, so you're sleeping, and then all of a sudden you hear, doom, 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 and like these really, like the, the very reedy instrument that they play. I don't know what it's called. But, and you go, well, this is inconvenient. I was sleeping, but it's this sort of reminder, this interruption of spirituality. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you've come to see things like interruptions and negatives when you travel. And do you also have sort of the same sense of, they're a reminder of, of the way things were or a, a counter narrative to sort of quote unquote reality. A, a lot of my life, my travel life and my life in general has been about realizing that it's easier for me to adjust how I think about things than to change how things are. And that by changing how I think about the world or the things I eat or the people I meet, I can actually enjoy things a lot better than wishing those people and places and tastes and experiences were something other than what they are. And it's not always easy, but I find that in the long run, it's more effective way of just living, just getting through every day. So, you know, when, when I wrote the book and I'm talking about this idea of these negative experiences. I mean, at this point for me, they're not necessarily negative experiences, although I would really not like to get Giardia again, but there are things that happen and things that you go through. And as much as I have gone through any of them, I've also gone through them as myself and as a writer. So I'm always sort of both inhabiting my own experience and watching my own experience from the outside and being able to both have that moment of discomfort or pleasure or epiphany and then also to watch that from the outside have that sort of meta what's it called metacognition that mega metacognitive act of watching myself have these experiences and processing it in that way as well so yeah it's made it's made it so that i can you know i can look maybe not look forward to pain and discomfort, but to accept it and deal with it a little bit better than I would have if I just wished the world was a different way and was not actually, <laughs> and, and finding the world not meeting my expectations. Um, as a writer, uh, as someone who's writing about these travel experiences, uh, they're kind of essential because uh, without them, you would just, I would just have series of delightful moments to relate to my readers and there's no drama in that that's no fun to write that's just the kind of thing that makes people hate you and probably makes editors stop assigning things to you if things go too well oh i was actually just in idaho a week or two ago doing a story about hot springs for bloomberg business week and I mean, it was a really great trip just driving around the snowy mountains of Idaho looking for these backcountry hot springs. And it was wonderful. And it was like a little bit tough. Uh, there were a couple of parts that the roads were rough or the trail was scary. But overall, it was actually like pretty easy, maybe pretty easy because I've done this kind of thing a million times at this point. But like as I was going through it, I was like, well, what am I going to be writing here? Where's the drama? Where's the tension? What's going to happen if this is all just as as wonderful and easy as it's been so far? And you know, luckily there were there were a couple of tough points, and those are what you structure your story around is the overcoming of challenges. So yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways I'm a pretty masochistic traveler, and I think that actually just helps me appreciate the times when things are delightful and easy. I think to, to go back to that question about Instagram and this idea of interruptions, I like to see books. I don't know about you, but I see them as sort of like an act these days of the sort of capitalism we live under or the world that we live under as sort of a reclamation of the self. 
and a reclamation of our time. Um, Shoshana Zuboff just wrote this book that has pissed everyone off in Silicon Valley called Surveillance Capitalism, where she sort of says, you know, like everything you're doing on Instagram or Facebook or Google is being monetized, monitored, and commodified. And so a book, you know, in a lot of ways is this reclamation of time, and it's also this reclamation of privacy. You have to carve out time to read it. Uh, the only person who knows you're doing it is you. And more importantly, like, it's an act that is independent of a larger process that's trying to get you to do all these things with targeted advertising and sort of filtered search results. So I really like that idea of why books about travel are important because you're you're watching Instagram, all the bikini shots, yeah, but that's watching you. And then the next time you go back on, it creates these sort of uh, feedback loops. I'm wondering how have you or how have the people in the travel journalism industry talked about these uh, hedonic treadmills, this sort of endless looping of pleasure and feedback? And have you come across any strategies of trying to think about travel differently or trying to uh, avoid or push back on these forces when we think about travel? I know that those feedback loops are real and that you know every aspect of your online behavior can can and is being recorded and monetized to some degree but i also think that there's loads of ways that a smart internet user can break those things and you know get the internet experience that that they deserve you know i i am one of the last devotees of RSS for getting my news. I pick all these sites that produce stories and content that I like, that I trust, that I want to know about. And I read it all as pretty much as soon as it comes out, stripped of all of the advertising and all of that other stuff. I get it direct. I, I don't want the situation to be, you know, buy in or just turn it off completely. Um, as far as books being an escape from that, I think that's great. Um, I am in favor of carving yourself out any kind of personal time you can from our corporate world. Uh, back when I worked at Bon Appetit running their website for a couple of years, uh, I avoided the famed Condé Nast cafeteria entirely. In two years of working at that company, uh, I only went there once in the afternoon for coffee, and yet this was where everybody I worked with went for lunch all the time on whatever floor that was on, never leaving the building. And me, I would go outside, rain or shine, and go find my lunch. Sometimes I would eat out, sometimes I would bring it back in. But I liked asserting the fact that I have a life. I have a life that's separate from this company I work for, and I am going to remind myself and everyone I work with that, you know, we are free beings who are entitled to this, you know, 37 minutes of freedom every day. Um, and everybody should do that. Don't let, don't let the system own you. And I see that same sort of thing with like Pokemon Go here in Asia, where uh, we, there used to be a lot of actual nature, you know, in places uh, in Asia, just like there were everywhere else. But a lot of that has become replaced. So rather, like, if you have an actual animal, and you'll see this from time to time, it's, I need to get it on video, but like, a, let's say a bird or a squirrel or something will, like, startle the person playing Pokemon Go. This actual animal comes and interrupts them uh, from chasing their digital animals, and they become, like, really upset or, like, really startled. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, like going back to um, the hedonic treadmill and Instagram, do you have some concerns from your own travels, your own journeys of things that you loved being replaced or these deeper, more substantive uh, things like society or animals or nature sort of being replaced by their 
hedonic uh, counterparts. Like even food, if you're a chef in Thailand, if your food is not Instagrammable, like you can be fired. Doesn't matter how it tastes. It has to be this all-encompassing hedonism. Uh, it seems like all the time to sort of replace the deeper meaning maybe behind Thai food of families coming together, eating as a group and bonding. Now it's just these isolated experiences through our screens. So that's a lot to take in, but what, why do you think some of these trends are happening and they alarm you? Yeah. I don't dispute what you're saying, but I think it makes us nostalgic for a past of eating, of traveling, of connection. That might never really have been. We we look at Instagram and how it's changed what we eat and how we eat. And we look at, you know, Pokemon Go and what how it's changing changing your relationship to nature. And we think that it must have been better and more wholesome and more real in the past. But, you know, go back 50 or 60 years and the person spotting the unusual animal in the wilderness was probably going to kill it. Um, the the um, restaurants we would get the whole family to go to together and engage with each other, you know, didn't serve black people. Like, there's, there's a dark side, you know, to everything. Um, and it, it, it feels sort of disingenuous to always blame technology for making things worse when things might not have been all that great to begin with. I, I was um, I was talking to um, uh, a friend at a Chinese New Year party last night um, about my my Augustinian philosophy about the world. Do you, are you do you, do you remember your Saint Augustine? Uh, I know enough from Chris Hedges uh, yelling about it to I think pick up where you're you're going. So my I, I love Saint Augustine because his 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 way of understanding God, um, his his confrontation with God of saying, "All right, how if God is good? If God is all good? If God is love?" How can there be evil in the world? How can bad things happen? And the way he answered that was by sort of redefining the terms, by saying, no, it's not that good and evil are opposed. It's that evil is a lesser form of good. Everything in the universe is on the good spectrum, and some of the things are closer to the zero end of the good spectrum, and other things are, you know, in the million-plus range on the good spectrum. It's all moments of goodness and that's how we understand that you know god is good and god is love and we can incorporate the miseries that happen in life into that scale so um i've decided to to invert that entirely and everything is awful everything in the world everything in the universe is just awful uh but the things that we think of as good are actually just slightly less awful and some of it is worse <laughs> yeah, that's my philosophy today is uh, from Augustine to Heidegger. Great. But it, it, it makes it make a lot more sense. And it, it prevents me from getting nostalgic for the wrong things. I kind of really hate nostalgia, even though I sort of give into it sometimes. I think nostalgia is a, a phenomenon that makes the world worse. So <laughs> worse than it already is, if you can believe it. But wishing, longing for a time when things are better is just not a good philosophy for approaching the world that we happen to live in. Bill Murray, in, in the movie Groundhog Day, uh, I think he really illustrates a point I really like. It comes from sort of the David Graeber, uh, James C. Scott. And they essentially say, like, look, you know, we're not saying nostalgia is the uh, solution. And certainly a lot of the points you brought up are right. But what they're saying is if you make these changes, um, you can't undo them. So like once you get locked into, let's say, um, uh, carbon capitalism, and you choose that as a system of development that you try to globalize, or like people like Hayek and von Mises did with neoliberalism, once you lock that in, you're locked in for a very, until there's a rebellion against that system. And even for like roads, when I think of like when I'm cycling, 
uh, compared to Cambodia. People don't like cycling in Cambodia, even though it's great because, you know, it's all bumpy and it's just dirt. There's no asphalt. And I always think like, well, once you put that asphalt down, you're not going back. And so Scott says in Seem Like a State, he says, look, whenever a state or anything where you're trying to make a change, make sure you can change it back in case it doesn't work out. Whereas I think a lot of times how we think about progress as Westerners is this very linear path forward. I like this idea that you can say, okay, well, that didn't work. <laughs> let's go back and you, Groundhog Day it, right? Like, let's go, you know, trying to be nice to everyone didn't work. Saving the homeless guy didn't work. Being a huge creep and sleeping with the hot uh, model at the charity auction didn't work. Okay, let's keep trying and going back. But it seems like we can't um, do that. And I'm wondering uh, for you, have you uh, had any of these thoughts about let's say things like development or sustainable development or this idea of how we can do a better job of preserving things so if things don't work out, we can go back. Mm, I like that. But what I worry is that to set up any kind of system of sustainable development on a broad scale would require people to have slightly different desires in their lives because uh, it means I think having lots of people want fewer material goods, fewer, you know, luxury moments, fewer of these, you know, advanced capitalist products like business class airplane seats and fancy watches and, um, you know, things like that. And uh, everybody wants them. I don't think this is just a thing of the West. I, there is a level of, you know, greed and selfishness that permeates the world everywhere. And I think, I mean, from, from, from my privileged point of view i think that most of those desires are pretty boring and i wish i could get people to see how boring those things are even if they do make life more comfortable but you really just have to get people to not want those things in order to set up systems where yeah you can turn back where you can say oh you know what we were wrong should have done it this way let's give it another try uh much more, you know, we need a level of humility about uh, ourselves and our attempts to push humanity forward, whatever that means. Uh, but most people are not humble. Most people are not interested in learning to like what they have. They want more. And I don't really know how you get you know, 7 billion people on board with uh, liking different things, <laughs> liking more modest things, not saying, uh, you know, people should be uh, comfortable being poor, but like there's a difference between wanting fancy cars and wanting, you know, to be able to get to and from your house, whether it's by public transportation or, you know, some other means. And I don't know how to do that, but that's really the, I think that is the most important step to making any kind of planet-wide system of development work. And without that, it's going to be the forces of sustainability up against the forces of greed. And the forces of greed tend to have tools at their disposal, like lots of money, that are pretty powerful. Have you been to Kandal Village in Siem Reap? Uh, no, I haven't been to Siem Reap in more than 10 years. So it's this, it's this area that got gentrified. Um, and so it, it was all these traditional uh, French colonial architectural style that a bunch of white business owners and Chinese capital came and bought up and uh, developed it. Um, and so it's this, uh, my friend was saying to me, he says, like, look, you know, what sustainable development is, uh, if you're the owner, it's sustainable development. 
if you're the worker, it's gentrification, or if you're the local there. Because it's not like any of the people in Siem Reap can afford to go into any of those places. Um, but to sort of thread this uh, needle about sustainable development and uh, some of these uh, floating uh, electrons of uh, capitalism and uh, socialism that we've been talking about, some of the things that have most radicalized me are not Marx or Engels or David Graeber, but coming into these concepts that are rebellious to my sort of Western capitalist reality. So when you go to like Shinto shrines, complete nonsense to capitalism. They go, you know, they'll wrap the, the rope around the uh, tree and go, this is the sacred tree. And, you know, like a capitalist, if they had come into Japan at that time and done what they did everywhere else, they go, that's nonsense. Like nature is just raw material to be used. But have you encountered any of these rebellions to your reality this sort of, that have really caused you to question or uh, interrogate some of what you've learned as in a as in a good American capitalist. I don't know. I don't know if that's ever really happened because I have tried not to hold on to any particularly strong beliefs about the world and its people. So that when I come into contact with new people and new situations. I can accept them for what they are. Like uh, one of my oldest friends from Vietnam uh, sent me a photo, I think just yesterday morning, um, of this one street, and it's just neon and people and signs and big buildings. And he said, "Guess where this is?" And I said, "Oh, uh, that's uh, Bouvian Street." And he said, "Yep, winner, winner." And it's like, "Wow, all right, I guess I haven't." been this street in a while uh it was it's one of the streets in the backpacker district of ho chi minh city and uh it's utterly unrecognizable from what it was when i lived in vietnam back in 1996 and 97 uh it was a street that i spent tons and tons of time on where i had the little grilled pork stand that i would go to for lunch every day and that i loved it was one of my favorite places and you know, it's just long, long, long gone. And everything that uh, had made that street a, you know, a charming and livable place to 22-year-old Matt Gross has just utterly transformed. But uh, it's not really up to me to say whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. This may be, you know, that sort of development may actually be really good for the people who own, you know, business and businesses and property in that area they may have hated the you know the the crumbling street that it used to be their kids you know they may maybe making enough money now off these businesses that they can send their kids to better schools and they can have more comfortable lives and if they have to go to hospitals they can actually afford you know treatment at the good hospitals instead of you know getting robbed at the bad hospitals like it's not my experience and my preferences are not the be-all and end-all of the world. So whatever I like, whatever I think is wonderful, whatever I think is sacred, is uh, that's just me. Um, I'm not in charge of these things, and I can regret their changes. I can mourn their passing, but uh, I, I don't have any ownership over them. And it's not for me to say what the people who do control these places do with them. I mean, in some cases, they, those people who live there may have nothing to do with those changes. Uh, it's maybe forces beyond their control that are altering things, and they may not like it. But that's for them to tell me, and it's not for me to sort of impose my, you know, my version of nostalgia on them. Um, you know, I mean, that said, there's things that... Uh, certainly things that I regret, things that I wish hadn't changed as much as they have. Um, it'd be really nice to be able to see the stars everywhere you go in this world. But, um, uh, you know, light pollution is kind of putting into that. Um, I have always construed myself as an observer of this world and not any kind of activist. So 
that's where I'm at. I would say for me, the um, Marxism is very helpful just because it says this is all a concept. Everything that we see before us now, uh, oftentimes that was either collectively owned or at a minimum uh, there was sort of this relationship between the feudal lord and the peasants. Um, so I, I, I don't think it's fair to necessarily say that it's just these processes are naturally happening when like 20 people own as much as 2 billion. I, I do think there's a concerted effort to keep things the way they are. Um, and I mean, you probably know this from, from uh, contacting or at least, you know, being in the New York media scene, like Evan Osnos, his story about billionaires buying up property in places like New Zealand, because they know once they ruin this world, that'll be one of the few places that will remain pristine. Um, I, I think certainly we can say that if we are going to just be an observer, we need to constantly be questioning what reality is. Is that a fair compromise on maybe our two positions? Sure. And, you know, when I say I'm an observer, I, I, I mean that somewhat, somewhat facetiously, because as an observer, as someone who goes out into the world and sees what's going on and then writes stories, I choose those details in the stories pretty carefully. There's, there's reasons I report certain things and you know make something of them in the stories that i tell so um yeah i mean i definitely wish things were other than they are and i would like to do what i can to change that but i want to do that from the position of someone who is you know, literally a medium. I want to transfer my experiences and observations to a broader audience in the hope that they will come to understand the world better and act accordingly. How do you write about food when they know, oh, geez, you know, this guy is from Bon Appetit magazine. And then from travel, if you're trying to write universally, how do you write uh, coming from the identity of being a CIS uh, white uh, male, and have you ever gotten in trouble for sort of breaking the consensus uh, of what is okay and not okay? I'm thinking of another uh, famous writer, uh, David Sedaris, got his ass handed to him when he wrote that uh, China travel article uh, that, you know, was one of the only times I've ever seen him get serious blowback for, do you know, you know what I'm referring to this? No, I haven't read that, but I will look that up. He goes to China and people are just, it's awful. Read it. It's, he's mean and cruel. So yeah, what, how do you write knowing that your status is, is either a white male or your sort of economic, who you're representing could mean like a huge deal to these people. Yeah, well, let me let me let me start with the easier, more practical thing first. Uh, when I was when I write for the New York Times and I've written for the New York Times, I'm always totally anonymous. I don't tell people what I'm there to do. I'm just a regular person staying at their hotel, eating at their restaurant, because the whole point is to experience things as a regular person would. Uh, it's not useful to a reader to find out what it's like for a, you know, privileged, known traveler to be doing these things. I am trying to stay as under the radar as I possibly can. For other magazines and for other types of stories, it's a little different, right? So, like, when we were at that restaurant in Taipei, I'm not writing a review of the restaurant, right? I'm not, I'm not there to say, hey, this is a good restaurant, or this is a bad restaurant, or they did this really well, or they did that well, and like, here's my review, and you should go here or not go here. Uh, I was there to do a story about like this new breed of chefs who uh, have come to the fore in Taipei. And uh, in some ways, it's already predetermined who I'm going to write about. It has more to do with who these people are and what they're trying to cook than how well they're actually executing that, although they tend to execute that very, very well. Um, if we had, you know, had, if we'd been at that restaurant and had a terrible meal, 
that was incompetently prepared, uh, I would not have included them in the story. And, it, you know, it would have been tough for them. But, like, uh, it doesn't really matter to me. The story is the, the, the story is the story that I need to tell and not some exchange of favors. Yeah, I mean, that's how, that's, that's how I deal with that, is by either staying anonymous or telling a different type of story that doesn't really depend on how known or unknown I am as I do it. The chefs are who they are, and they're cooking what they're cooking, and that's kind of what's interesting. And it's actually so much freeing for me to, be, to, to get to separate my own opinion about every single thing I ate from the reality of the phenomenon. I get to write about, I get to be a reporter and like, here's what's going on and here's how I understand it. Now, as a, you know, as a white guy wandering through the world, I'm, you know, always hyper aware of that, that it's basically pretty easy for me. I am never really going to be seen as, you know, a threat. Uh, I'm not going to be dangerous. I'm not seen as someone who is, you know, obviously obviously stereotypically poor or, or um troublemaking uh and you know that that makes that certainly makes life and travel a lot easier but when i'm writing about these things i try to be aware of those facets and i am also very aware of how much or how little i put myself into the stories um the stories i try to make uh, about the places I go to, and though they're almost always first person, uh, I try to, you know, I try to neutralize myself to a degree. I mean, yeah, you're reading, you're definitely reading Matt Gross sentences. This is, these are Matt Gross structures across the story. I like to imagine that my writing is relatively recognizable, but uh, I don't, I don't really get too detailed about myself or my own particular quirks. Not going to read my Augustinian Heideggerian <laughs> take on life in a story about hot springs in Idaho. You know, I, th I think all writers kind of have to do that, regardless of where you are, what your identity politics happen to be. You always have to understand as someone who's reporting on the world how how does who I am shape how the world is reacting to me? And how do I, you know, how do I report that? And how do I um, account for that? How do I counteract that? How do I write something that is a story for lots of people that will entrance lots of people, a wider audience than just myself, you know, and, and not just turn a story into piece of total subjectivity i mean that's I, to, to me at least in, in my realm of travel writing and maybe this is this too is shaped by my own identity and my own history uh i think that's what good travel writing is is uh, a reconciliation of the world and the self understanding each through the other and hopefully by the end coming to uh, a greater consciousness that is also going to appeal to lots of and lots of different readers. One of the quotes I think so much about when uh, luxury travel is Lucille Bluth asking, I think, Michael, how much a banana costs, and then giving some like wildly improbable estimate, like seven dollars. So the the reason I, I bring this up is is in regards to travel journalism. Uh, Matt Taibbi he recently wrote this uh, great article about. Journalists, and he says, like, look, the bias for a lot of journalists does not necessarily come from racial makeup, though that is a problem, or gender makeup, even though they, they still obviously skew white and male. He's saying these things are becoming more diverse. But what he's saying um, is that it really depends on sort of your class. He saw this as one of the biggest uh, problems in journalism now, that everyone comes from the East Coast or West Coast, and so these notions of like critiquing and acceptance of the self, I always view it as sort of you need others to see the self. Um, you need other people to help interrogate and conceptualize and 
constantly question reality. And I'm wondering for, for travel journalists who um, probably some of these criticisms apply to, how do they interrogate themselves so they're not saying, Manolo, the people here are so wonderful, or you know, asking for $7 bananas? How do they connect to these very disparate, very poor uh, realities in a way that's convincing or authentic? Uh, I don't know how the others do it. I mean, I think, uh, being a very poorly paid travel journalist, uh, makes you <laughs> very aware of, um, you know, economics when, when most publications are barely paying any expenses for these elaborate trips you want to do, you, you know, you learn the value of a dollar or peso or renminbi pretty damn quickly. Um, I don't know about other parts of journalism and how people get along. You, you, you don't go into journalism to get rich, which is probably why a lot of, uh, you know, upper middle class and rich people go into journalism. They don't need the money. <laughs> They're certainly not going to get it. But if you do actually need to make money doing this to earn a living, which, which I definitely do, I, you know, you, you start to understand economics of life a little bit better. I think like the, the holy grail of travel, what it could be is you could go somewhere, would it matter if you went to Johns Hopkins or you never graduated high school? It wouldn't matter if you uh, had, you were, you were born into a family of plumbers or into a, a plumbing com conglomerate that sells ball bearings to Walmart and you're now a billionaire. It would just be this idea that two people could sort of sit together for some common medium, come to understand each other and befriend one another. So through the medium of food or, you know, two guys having a drink at a bar or um, do you still believe that those sorts of things are possible? Have you ever, through some of these interactions, come to have close friendships or relationships or do some of these class barriers, you know, that one of us grew up reading Voltaire, the other person doesn't know how to read. What What are your thoughts on these relationships? I mean, I feel like I've had a I mean, I know that I've had a lot of kind of incredible connections with a huge range of people all around the world. But I also think that in some ways there's, there's a, there's a limit there to how those interactions go, which is probably, you know, governed a lot by class. But it's like when you travel, it's essentially a leisure activity and you wind up in this position of, a, well, what do you actually like to do? What do you want to be doing? What, what on a very basic human visceral level gives you pleasure? You know, there there might be someone that you connect with out in the world, you know, a Turkish apple farmer or, you know, a roaming cook or a coal miner or whatever, who you may connect with well over a meal at random. But then there might also be, you know, maybe after that meal, after that initial moment of con. Uh, of, of connection, uh, you might find yourself limited in the sense of, well, this person, here's how this, here's how I choose to spend my leisure time. Here's how I enjoy spending my leisure time. Here's how this other person does. And we can sample each other's lives and experiences to a degree, but maybe I just don't actually like doing the things that this person likes doing. Um, and that can sort of be this weird limiting factor of just like, uh, wanting the connection and yet not actually gaining a lot of pleasure from uh, uh, experiencing another person's chosen leisure time. You know, there's you may um, dip a toe into that sort of thing, visit a you know, go to some monster truck rally in Sumatra that you wouldn't otherwise go to because you had, you know, great grilled chicken with 
someone you met in the hills and they invited you along and it's a kind of great experience and you may feel connected to that person but in some ways that connection is temporary and limited um and i have at times been frustrated by that by wanting to feel like the connection with these some of these people that i've met uh, wishing it could be deeper more serious more eternal and yet also making myself comfortable with the idea that it's okay for connections to be short. Not all friendships have to be eternal. Not all encounters have to be meaningful. So you could say, all right, well, this was our time together. This was wonderful. And actually, we can both just let it go. You sort of brought up this idea of emotional labor, which I'm sure you've heard that term it comes from, I think, Arielle Hochschild. She was writing about flight attendants, how, you know, that so much of what they had to do and how they were rated was, you know, if they smiled. And um, I've always thought the concept in, in restaurants and dining of service was just incredibly bourgeois. This idea of, like, rating the acting ability of, uh, of sort of a human being. And I'm wondering, you know, not to return to economics or Marxism, but in, in this idea of if we did want to build a better world, from your experiences as a traveler, do you think maybe this is where some of your best experiences come from? Not when it's Manolo fanning you with a smile on his face, but, but that type of travel certainly exists of literally being weighted hand on foot with a smile on your face, um, this emotional labor. Do you think maybe uh, a trend that you've seen more in travel or that might be something we could look to develop more to make the world a better place is this idea of just letting people be themselves in their workplace and in their environment and just accepting it as it is. And then through that, some of this spontaneity that you've talked about might be able to happen. Last, last summer, um, sort of at the tail end of two months of constant travel. Uh, I went up in Tokyo for a few days and I used many accumulated points to check into the Hilton in Shinjuku. You know, it's a big Hilton, um, modernist and sort of anonymous. I remember, you know, checking to my room and as I was checking in, uh, I heard someone speaking Vietnamese and I was like, huh? And I looked and I realized that all the housekeeping staff there spoke were Vietnamese. They were all, you know, Vietnamese guest workers. And, you know, it was kind of cool. I was like, oh, I can, like, have little bits of chit-chat with them. And I can say, you know, if, they're, if I actually happened, I came back to my room once and they were cleaning it. And they were like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And I was like, you know, I got to tell them Vietnamese. Like, it's okay. I can wait. You, you know, you go on. It's not a problem. And it was like, that was actually kind of cool to be able to you know, it's probably pretty rare in Tokyo that the Vietnamese housekeeping staff gets to speak Vietnamese with a random white American who shows up. You know, I don't know. I liked it because I just like any opportunity to speak Vietnamese. And it also sort of let me have a brief view on the world of these of this housekeeping staff. Who are these people? Where do they come from? And to imagine them with, you know, with lives in a deeper way than I would have if maybe if they'd just been like Japanese people there because they are just sort of suddenly they would have just remained part of the background of Japanese-ness that you get when you're in Japan, just the same way that you have a background of Chinese-ness when you're in China or a background of American-ness when you're in America. Um, and all of that is to say, like, if I'm trying, if I was trying to imagine this large hotel with a staff full of people who were suddenly allowed or even encouraged to be total individuals, uh, I can't imagine that place functioning. And there is, for better and for worse, a need for large hotels like the Hilton to do what they do. And uh, I imagine that they function more smoothly and are uh, more comfortable, frictionless stays for the people who, who check in 
and those are people who want generally frictionless stays than if uh, they all quirked out. So, yeah, I mean, it'd be great if small places allowed their staff to be individuals, but uh, as that's I can't see that happening in a broad way. It, it for me, it's uh, I mean, the story is, is more sad. Where I look at these people who were hired because they were able to pay them less, put into this very alien situation, sort of ripped away from uh, their culture, and and this idea of control to me is like uh, Sartier. You know, he talks about this uh, idea of bad faith, where like there's no such thing as a waiter. There's a person who's doing a function of of serving tables. But if you said, be the best waiter you can, that's like saying, be the best winged hippopotamus that you can, or be the best, you know, any other nonsense concept. It doesn't exist. But this is so funny because this is so French or, you know, notorious for never asking what your job is. You're at a party, you could know someone, you know, for weeks or months, and you know them on a personal philosophical level, and yet you have no idea what they do as a job. And 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 that's in some ways wonderful. I love that. But this is also a country where people can have careers as waiters, where people can be professional waitstaff into you know their fifties and sixties and have that actually be a good living. So when 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 he says that, what, what was the analogy? To be the best waiter you can be would be like what? Oh, well, that's my analogy. But he's he's saying that. He's not diminishing the craft. He's just saying... He's coming from a country where people do spend their lives being the best waiters that they can be. <laughs> but you... They just also don't let that define who they are. Um, I, I just think that that's a, like, that's a wonderful and weird irony. I don't, I don't think that's a, a contradiction or a hypocrisy, but like he just happens to be speaking from uh, in a place where... Uh, Hiding the fact of your job and yet also doing that job really well as a professional career, uh, in, whereas in other countries, people would only do that job as, you know, teenagers or in their 20s or if they couldn't get any other job. I, I would see it a bit differently where I think why that probably exists is that in France as well, there's much less pressure to be... It, within these careers to be what someone else tells you to be. Uh, you know, I've worked service jobs. I'm sure you have as well. When I did the shittiest job is when I didn't want to be there. Or specifically when I was sort of told to be something I wasn't. Smile if you're not happy. You know, be pleasant when you're in a bad mood. Uh, and I think sort of this, this idea maybe of why France has the best waiters beyond sort of the fact that France has this very... Um, long history of basically saying, don't tell me what to do, is this idea that when you're waiting, it's not, you know, uh, uh, the CEO of McDonald's through a series of middle managers filtering down, telling you what good service is. It's probably this more human to human connection uh, that the French have to one another and to themselves of this is what it means to do my job well. Um, it, so, I mean, that's how I would see that, that sort of uh, what, what Sartre is getting at. Uh, not as an irony, but as two mutually um, symbiotic forces allowing for this better reality than sort of the American reality of you have to do this because your boss says so. And you have to be this way even if it's not who you are. Yeah. Well, the flip side of that is the, what we have now. Um, did you read the, it was a story in the Times, not this weekend, but the previous weekend, about uh, the, the hustle scam, this whole idea of uh, essentially l lying about how much they love work, this idea yeah. that your job is your life and you must, you know, you need to pursue the thing you love and make it your all and cry from the rooftops about how wonderful it all is. Um, you know, and that's just a bunch of bullshit too. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure which is worse. Actually, probably the other thing is worse. So they're all pretty terrible. As I said earlier, everything is awful and some things are worse. 
That's very much sounds like a, a pitch title. Um, yeah, I, I certainly would say I take the perspective that America typically comes from a place where the boss has always tried to be king. There's a very set reason why things are the way they are, and I think that usually comes, at least in work, from a boss. Um, so I, I think that there's, there's definitely better ways to do things. And to be honest, basically I don't take any conventional wisdom from America because I think we've done so many awful things uh, and have such a, a violent, contradictory society of the rule of the few over the many. So I would gladly have a French waiter say it's pronounced chowder than, you know, a sad, strung out on fentanyl waiter at a, a West Virginia Applebee's, uh, present me my, my riblets, and then go, you know, do another line in the bathroom just to get through the day. <laughs> I want to go to that Applebee's. That sounds like a fun road trip. I want to go to the Chowder restaurant um, with a family of New Englanders and, and see if the French, uh, how they deal with that. Um, you're, you're married into an intercultural family. Your wife is Taiwanese. Uh, you're American. Um, you have two girls. I'm wondering for when you're a family and you're intercultural, how does how do you sort of teach what it means to be like a good kid when you have sort of one set of ethics, uh, sometimes working with and working against another set, or one set of principles or way of looking at things compared to another. Um, Judaism, I'm sure, has had a, a huge impact for you growing up and probably taught you lessons that you didn't always agree with, but sometimes you did. And maybe those became principles in your life. Just like, I'm sure for your wife, being Taiwanese, concepts like guanxi or renqing wei might have had a, a big impact on her, even if, if some of it she left behind and some of it she took. So for the girls, when, they, when they're going to Taiwan or when they're in the States, how do you sort of see this, this process of raising them as two cultures coming together? And, and what does that feel like to you as a father? I mean, I always just try to talk to them as relatively intelligent human beings and to present them with options and to help them understand the background behind whatever kinds of decisions they're going to make. You know, in some ways, it's actually, I sort of feel like we have three cultures to deal with here, which is sort of my wife's Taiwanese background and my Jewish American background, and then also kind of trying to explain the rest of Christian America to my kids at the same time. And that is, you know, it's like there's this other force out there that we have to explain. You know, it's not just that the kids are Taiwanese-American or Taiwanese-Jewish or whatever, or Buddhist-Jewish or whatever, but, like, that, that we exist also in opposition to this other force out there that it wants to define identity and control behavior. So, uh, you know, we find ourselves at the, you know, at the, the intersection of a lot of different things, Um you know, and I, I want my kids to make informed choices about their lives and their behavior. And I would just like them to, in general, be honest about themselves and then how they approach the world. That's really all I can kind of ask. Um, I mean, I don't know that, that I'm providing them with an overtly Jewish, you know, home education. Um, my parents would like it if I if I did more, um, they would like their kids to be culturally Jewish on some level. We do send them to Chinese school on Saturday mornings, which they resent. They go to Taiwan every summer and they go to Chinese camp there, which they more than resent. But they like that part of their lives. Um, we happen to live, you know, in a nice part of Brooklyn that's very diverse and their school has all kinds of people from all kinds of different backgrounds and they actually get along pretty well. So, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice situation to be in where that 
kind of multiplicitous identity is expected and appreciated. Uh, I, at some point, they'll go and live somewhere else where maybe maybe it won't be that way and they'll, they'll get a bit of a culture shock. I think being a father in this world is a supreme act of bravery. So even though you've you have sort of a gallows humor about the way the world is, and you really have to be uh, brave to be a father at any point in history. Um, Truly, on this planet, there is no one yeah. braver than I. Well, uh, well, there's the there's that the humor again. Adam Curtis recently gave this uh, interview on Russell Brand, and they were talking about this idea of the uh, internet. And so Adam Curtis is saying. I think in like 10 years, it'll be this incredibly weird place that no one goes on except to like just be shocked or horrified or almost like, you know, trips into uh, Chernobyl just to see if like the deer have two heads, just this completely forbidden zone. I hope that doesn't come to pass, <laughs> but just for travel, to end on sort of this note, and you can be dystopic or utopic or neither, where are things heading, you think, based on some of the processes we've talked about? Where are things heading for travel in terms of the next 10 years, how people travel, what the world might look like? Uh, in the last few years, there's been a leveling off of changes from about the mid-90s, but especially the early 2000s till about 2012, 2014 at the latest, there was a real opening up of the world. There were a ton of destinations that people had never really been to before that suddenly had new airports, new roads, new political st stability, new hotels, new ways to make it easier to visit them. I'm thinking, you know, parts of Southeast Asia, parts of Eastern Europe, parts of Central America. Uh, you have low-cost airlines that were suddenly taking you to, you know, third-tier cities of countries you may have heard of before but never thought about going to this particular region. There was a lot of opening up in the span of about 12 years. I don't see a lot of places left to open up in the way that they did in that decade. To me, things really haven't changed that much in the last you know, five, six, seven years in the world of travel. Um, you know, air, airplanes are maybe a little bit nicer, hotels, slightly different color schemes. Uh, Instagram, I guess, has made people memorialize their trips in new and newly boring ways. But it's the, the places people are going and the ways that they're going there are you know, not that different from a few years ago. So I don't really see major, major changes happening in broad industry. Um, unless there's some serious and dramatic, you know, environmental crises, whether that's, you know, sudden massive fuel short, jet fuel shortages or, um, really, really rapid sea level rise, things that would just really fuck up the world, not just the world of travel, but the world. Um, and all that stuff is going to happen. It's just happening, you know, over uh, a, a shorter, over a longer period of time. But if it suddenly happened fast, then you'd see some pretty big changes in how people spend their leisure time. If those sudden changes don't happen, it's just going to kind of go on the way it is for a while with everybody going everywhere to do all kinds of different things for whatever reason they want. Yeah, it, it just is now. I mean, it'd be great if, you know, I'd like to think that there will be more people like, like me who just want to explore unseen parts of the world, not necessarily like off the beaten path, but like who get, pleasure who who get more out of um you know the weird byways than they do from you know the mega sites that everybody sees uh yeah the world needs more me i'm sorry
but it's true. What would be a couple pieces of journalism that you've written that you would use to say, hey, this is a great example of my insight, my, my writing style? Read, uh, read my last story about Vietnam in the New York Times. Something like, meet my first love, Saigon. That's what you should go read. That's me right there. We can put that, uh, we'll dig up the link and put it in the uh, description. And also, uh, Hot Pursuit, can you just say a couple words about that and maybe that's another way people can familiarize themselves with you? So in the, in the last few years, I've become obsessed with chili peppers and how over the last 500 or so years, they spread out from the Americas, turning the cuisines we now know uh, now think of as spicy into actually spicy cuisine. So before chili peppers left the Americas, Thai food had no chilies. Indian food had no chilies. Sichuan food had no chilies. Kimchi was white. And I have become somewhat obsessed with trying to understand how these changes happen uh, and what those have meant for what people eat and what kind of cultures they live in. So I wrote a long story for Airbnb magazine last summer, charting the process, the, the progress of the chili through Jamaica, Hungary, and Thailand. And I'm doing more research, hoping to turn it into a book called Hot Pursuit and a TV series also called Hot Pursuit. So yeah, uh, look for Hot Pursuit anywhere and everywhere you possibly can, and eat lots of spicy food, please.